Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of the Early Music Podcast, our future past, that will lead to the November 2020 Early Music Summit in Brussels. I am Albert Edelmann, chair of REMA, the European Early Music Network, and a artistic coordinator at Concertgebouw Brugge. And today, I am interviewing Bernard Foucault, our conference's keynote speaker, to set the tone for our discussions. Bernard Foucault is known as an organist and a composer, but also as the former director of several major institutions, including most recently the Festival d'Aix-en-Provence. We are taking some time to discuss early music in general, where it came from, where it might be headed, and where it maybe should not go in the future. Bernard Foucault, my first question is very easy. Could you share what the words early music mean to you, just those two words? For me, early music would probably mean the music that was not immediately preceding our time, the music we had no direct tradition with. If I'm thinking about uh, Wagner, for example, I would never say that Wagner is early music, even if it was composed more than a hundred years ago, because the tradition going from Wagner until today is so rich and so continuous, even if there are important movements and uh, important ruptures in that tradition, the tradition is that. If we take all the big composers, including Bach and uh, Monteverdi, Purcell, Lully, Rameau, and so on, it's not the case. I think with those composers, the link has been cut at uh, a certain moment, maybe just after the death, their death, or a little bit later on, but the continuity is not there and had to be reinvented. For me, this word of invention or reinvention is a very key word if we speak about early music. So for me, organ was my main instrument with Sigiswald Kirchen, for example, accompanying him on the violin. But uh, my uh, few lessons, I had a few lessons with Gustav Leonard. And uh, that was each moment, each second of that, I still remember today. So it's been very fundamental in my development. If I'm thinking back to that time, and I'm speaking about the early 70s, I would say that probably the big matter of the research at the time was we were looking for more authenticity. We were trying to get as close as possible to what we thought the composers had been wishing for, the kind of sound that he was creating or using on the, his instrument the kind of style, of course, the meaning. And so it was a process going to as close as possible to a certain kind of truth. I, I very much think that people like Gustav Leonard, and I am today still a, a big, big admirer of, of his work, have been really involved in a process trying to get as close as to the source, to these uh, key figures to the musical sources, to the musical instruments, and so on and so forth. Probably, at a certain point, I developed another point of view that was less looking for a truth, 
and so less looking for authenticity, but maybe more a sort of an invention process. I remember that for Leonard, it was clear. Yes, I, I remember that I, I tried to, to explain, uh, but I think it was impossible to do that really, to explain that for me, what has been so fascinating in, in his work, in his process, was that looking for authenticity, he has been able to be one of the most creative musicians of the 20th century. And the same with Anoku, and the same with the Kaiken, and the same with the Deller, and the same with René Jacobs, who developed them later in, in a different way. And I think it is, for me, still a very key point. And I very much hope that in the future of early music, if I can say so, I think this kind of freshness and uh, research spirit will keep on because I think that was uh, so remarkable in the time. In that period, especially in the 60s, 70s, it was very obvious that people like the Kaiken, for example, and their friends and colleagues were certainly mainly preoccupied with early music, but also with contemporary music and uh, improvising in contemporary musical language and so on and so forth. And I think these two streams had a lot of affinities. I still like very, very much uh, what I can hear on the old CDs of that time or on the later uh, recording that that generation has done. And I think it's been uh, absolutely fascinating. But probably I have another frame today which is less looking for truth than looking for the truth in the relationship between our time and the time of early music. I would never say today that in playing Bach, I am trying to just go as close as possible to Bach. I'm trying to be as authentic in my own way as a, a contemporary performer to go in the direction of Bach and to also bring his music back to our time. So yeah. I like very much the idea of a meeting, of a confrontation, of a dialogue. And I think if the word truth can be used, it should be used in that frame what is the truth in our relation with the early music? This is a key point, the idea of truth, the idea of authenticity. I wonder if there was a point when early music discovered that, or if it wasn't always there. You mentioned the cutting off of direct contact with a composer, which then requires research. Can you say how you think that happened, and maybe also when, as the early music movement goes back much further than many people think? back to the early 20th century and even the late 19th century when there was a revival, a certain looking back. How do you think about the movement and what makes early music stand out? My intuition is that the early music movement was starting from a doubt. They were doubting or they were even in rebellion to the so-called truth coming from the romantic and post-romantic area. And they were asking a lot of questions about things that were 
obvious for most musicians, for most pianists, for most conductors, for most singers who were used to perform probably a little bit all the music in one style. I think the early music movement tried, started in questioning that and say, why do you say so? Why do we do so? Why don't we try to sing without vibrato? Why don't we try to, to work with another bow? What if we change the traction on an organ and go back to a mechanical traction and so on and so forth? I think this question, also the question of the scores. When I was young, we had very terrible bad scores, you know, of um, and not only about Bach, but also some uh, romantic composers were transmitted in very, very bad scores. So I think the early music movement was questioning that and trying to address all the time new questions. And each generation, each decade, each individual that was active was bringing his own critical aspect of that. And from that point of view, I still, this is still relevant today. And maybe we need just to renew a little bit that critical aspect to what we have inherited or what the young generation has inherited from the former one. So that was probably between, let's say, Kahayan and Harnoncourt. <laughs> Clearly, it's another world. Uh, and of course, I, I feel much closer to Harnoncourt, even if some performances uh, and recordings are now a little bit uh, outdated. But still, I think the fundamentals of his research and performance practice are still, I think, very, very vivid today. Those issues have to come out of a certain dialogue, of course. I wonder if you think recently there has been more movement. There is an idea that we had the late 20th century pioneers who were then often just copied. Do you see a new dynamic in our way of thinking? Well, I think the, the rules have to be always uh, re-questioned and always back and forth. Let's take one example, which is the diapason. Uh, I think for many years, people thought, and even many musicians thought, that the authentic diapason of early music was 415. Now we just have to laugh about that because it's so much more complicated and complex. And we know that they were a very much lower diapasons and very much higher diapasons. So more than a third the difference between the lowest and, and at the same time, and sometimes even in the same country. Probably each generation has brought new questions and probably also new evidence. I think there are some evidences that are now shared but also those evidences can be, again, re-questioned. I take another example. Uh, I have very distinguished colleagues who are absolutely convinced that Dietrich Buxtehude wrote his most advanced pieces for reading and not for playing. And they have strong arguments about that, some strong reasons saying that Buxtehude didn't have an organ that was allowing all the keys or all the, a lot of things. I am of a totally opposed conviction. I am absolutely convinced that Buxtehude did perform his pieces. And uh, sometimes there was probably a, a tension 
a contradiction between what you wanted to create and what were the constraints of the instruments. But then you had a vivid dialogue with organ builders, you had some organs retuned, and they were looking, they were in, in a creative process. And I think it would be, in my opinion, a mistake to say it was like this. No, I think it was much more diverse than that. And probably they were, and we, not probably, we are sure that they were in the 18th century still, even sometimes in the 19th century, instruments and organs particularly that were tuned in many different ways, sometimes very archaic and sometimes very advanced or sometimes equal. So just to give, to take this example shows that the, the situation, our perception of the situation can be very diverse. Now, still looking at the development of vocal and instrumental music, more and more people in the young generation, and I'm following them uh, with passion, are convinced that we have been using much too many small organs, too soft. And um, because I think the might, the keyword for many years was transparency, and we had to produce a transparent sound. But excuse me, if you look at a Schnitger or a, a Zilberman sound, it's not transparent, it's, it's polyphonic, but it's very rich, and the core of the sound is very substantial. So if you then accompany uh, singers, especially, but also violin players, cornetto players, or, or hobos, and, and so on, you will have to, to adapt a little bit more, uh, but they will have to adapt. Uh, probably both sides, the continual player and the soloist, they have to look for another way of bringing the sound together. We are probably at the beginning of that new phase in research, and it will be very interesting to, to look at what new... Already now, we see more and more organs coming with a principal instead of just a bourdon, very soft bourdon that was used for 50 years. I think almost all cantatas by Bach have been recorded with very small instruments in comparison to what Bach had to play, perform when he was accompanying the cantatas in Leipzig, for example. So that's just an example of, of transformation so quite apart from the current crisis, which might disrupt live performance in all kinds of ways for the foreseeable, the future of musicians is safe as long as they stay curious? The biggest danger that could uh, occur today would be if the young generation would take the heritage of the previous generation, of the pioneers, as the truth, instead of looking at that as the most wonderful, the most generous way to open uh, a field of research and of interpretation. Interpretation in both sense, in performance, but also in an interpretation of what does that mean and what does it mean to play this music today. I think if we keep going on on the path that they have opened and we keep questioning year after year, day after day, I think we might keep the spirit. This is the most important thing, in my opinion. With your various recordings of composers' entire organ catalogues, you've brought many more or less forgotten masters back to the fore, notably from the Dutch-German school of the early Baroque. 
How did you embark on that mission, if we can call it that? You got the chance to do this kind of in-depth work. Do you think such projects will still be possible for future generations as well? Is it worthwhile or even necessary to go all the way like you did? Yeah, if I had to use a word instead of mission, I would speak about love. A mission could be something that is given to you from, I don't know, God or human beings. And it was not. I think it was more something that became quite natural to me. And um, yes, it may be, it's linked to something that is also essential, I think, to early music movement, which is that we have been learning with that movement to look at the music from its origin and not from the tradition. Until the generation of early musicians like Arnoncourt or Leonard, I think Mozart was seen through the 19th century lentils. And um, it was seen as, as a weak composer compared to Beethoven and, and the Romantic ones. If we look at Mozart from the generation before him, the sons of Bach and uh, the Mannheim School and so on and so forth, then we discover a, a musician that is much more passionate, extreme, diverse in emotions, and, and so on and so forth. And I think this is a very important point also. If we look at Monteverdi, we can look at Monteverdi from what he has brought to the music after him. But if you look at what was before him, then we discover how giant he was in creating and assimilating the heritage of the previous generations. It was an incredible adventure to start recording those composers. Some of them I knew well, like Buxtehude, but still, when you, when you perform all the pieces by a composer, then you, you learn also to how you change step by step your vision of, of it and you go deeper in it and then going back to the generation of Scheidemann and Pretorius, for example, or Weckmann. And to understand the music of Weckmann, I think we have now some keys and some tools to understand it, but I still think there is a lot of mystery in it. And I think that is for a creative musician quite uh, inspiring because you never can say that's it you every time you approach a new element of the truth then you discover that there is still a mystery behind and it's an endless process and the fact that it's endless makes me very happy because i would hate the idea that i've come to the wall and now that's it I very much believe there will always be a new horizon behind. Early music, its way of performing historic repertoire, has been a driving force within the performing arts for a number of decades now, with the repertoire and dedicated performers taking pride of place on the world's stages. Would you agree that early music performance has indeed gone mainstream? Yes, and I, I would even go further. I, th there is a kind of early music that I... I have difficulty with today. Uh, there are some Vivaldi pieces that I cannot listen to anymore, even if it's very well played. So the, the danger of that is that not only for the musicians, but also for the audience. If early music 
loses its, its freshness, its character of, of invention, then we go into a world of consumerism and the danger, uh, one of the dangers of uh, early music, of course, is to be the victim of that process. So I, I very much uh, share that with you. It's not only about early music, it's about culture and, and artistic creation in general. I very much think today that the biggest danger on our culture is the consumerism, is the way to look at art, at art creation and diffusion in terms of uh, consumption. Everything that is going in, in the direction of creation, invention, participation, is the opposite of that big trend. And I think this is why I think that, for example, I would suggest that many festivals and institutions that are dealing with early music would also include some contemporary or some intercultural creations in such an order that the audience is never just taken too comfortable, but is invited also to re-question the values, the habits, and uh, what this music means. Do you think the aspect of comfort played a role for the audience in the 70s, 80s, and 90s? What do you think people were looking for at the time, just before or around when early music went mainstream? And how do you compare such expectations with those of the audience of today? In the 70s in France, there was very, very little early music, even on the radio. It started with organ, a little bit harpsichord, and so but, but very much. And uh, when they uh, heard for the first time the Kaiken, the Collegium Vocale, the Leonard, and so on, they were bored. And uh, most people didn't like it. They really disliked it profoundly. So there was no feeling of comfort. The feeling of comfort came much more later on when the audience became to be used to listen to some pieces uh, in a more comfortable way. And this is dangerous because we are not anymore 40 years ago where the early music was in a way taken by rebels, people like, uh, for example, Franz Bruggen. Bruggen was an interesting figure. He was a sort of a provo in Amsterdam. And uh, it was interesting to see him and Leonard because they were visually quite different, but very friendly, very, very like brothers in terms of music. My feeling today is we have lost a little bit that kind of rebellion atmosphere. Maybe it's less in our time, but profoundly speaking, I think we have to look for the same kind of creativity and the same internal rebellion. Should we maybe put some blame on the side of the organizers? Might we be falling into the trap of pleasing our audience rather than challenging them? What could be a way out of this conundrum? Which side paths could we take? In your times as directors of various institutions, maybe you felt that you could use early music in a provocative way? What I like in programming, what I've been trying to do, is never really to please the audience, but I was very pleased when the audience liked what I offered them. But I tried to give them a hand and take them into a new field of discovery. 
it was also sometimes ancient music, like uh, the L'Orfeo by Monteverdi or Il Ritorno d'Ulisse with uh, L'Orfeo with, with uh, René Jacobs and Trisha Brown. And the same year, 98, it was the Kent Ridge and Philippe Pierlo who did uh, the beautiful version of Il Ritorno d'Ulisse. I think these two uh, productions, in my opinion, were stunning, just uh, beautiful, but not so obviously admired immediately because they were shocking, in a way, the audience for musical or for visual or theatrical reasons. So it took a while, at least a few months, before it really became an international success. Of course, when we decided with Freelaisen at the Künstler Festival des Arts to do these two productions together, we were not trying to provoke the audience or to please them. We were just following important artists of our time, and those artists were just trying to do the most beautiful production possible, rooted on their own expertise and, and their own experience. Sometimes it can lead to a moment of a tension, of, of a, quite a big tension with the audience. And then we, as an organizer, maybe we have to take care that the tension is not leading to a movement of misunderstanding, but we have to be prepared that they can be clashes, you know. But I would not like the idea, and sometimes I see that in when I read some texts or interviews by some, some German theater directors, for example, they think it's necessary to provoke the audience in a brutal way. I don't believe that. I think if the audience is, by the artistic process itself, is provoked and, and is uncomfortable, okay, that, that's fine. And let's hope they will find a way out that feeling of uncomfort. But I think the fundamental process of an artist is not that. And the danger of today, in my opinion, in the field of, of theater and opera, would be a sort of a new academism of the provocation, which is a sort of um, an easy and superficial provocation uh, to have new people on stage, for example. If it's not necessary, it's a stupid provocation. It's just an academic gesture. And sometimes it can be the most beautiful and meaningful image if it's well, if it's really well-funded in the piece or in the, in the dramaturgical process. It's true what you say, that I have the privilege of living in a family where uh, early music is still a very important uh, point of activity. And looking at what Lambert, Colson, and uh, my daughter Alice are, are doing, and their friends, and their so we have a lot of rehearsals at home with the young musicians, young uh, continual players, violin players, singers, and so on. I am really passionate about uh, following what they do. And uh, sometimes they are, I'm learning new, quite often I must say, I'm learning new elements uh, in theory or in practice, in continual playing and so on and so forth. So I'm very happy to see that this creation and invention movement that I was describing earlier on is still going on and still also going on at uh, an international level. And this is also something that is quite remarkable in the, the process of early music. 
it's been much more an international than a national movement. Of course, there were some Flemish or Dutch uh, families of musicians, and later on an Austrian at the beginning, and then later on French or German. But anyway, it's been quite a European journey. And uh, I think it's interesting because originally speaking, it was the same. I think in the, uh, in the Baroque period, it was a European movement with some uh, specific national or regional characteristics. But they were speaking a sort of a global musical language. And uh, I'm very moved when I see that this is still going on. And yeah, I hope it, it will still go on. Bernard Foucault, thank you very much for sharing your points with us today. And if all goes well, we are really looking forward to seeing you speak later this year during our November conference in Bazaar. Thank you very much, Albert. With this fascinating personal history full of provocative ideas on curiosity, countercurrents, and a need to constantly challenge ourselves, I was very happy to introduce our keynote speaker today, as well as our podcast series, and I hope that you'll all join us again for the next episodes of the Early Music Podcast, our future past. Now, I would like to introduce Jasmina Sirncic, who will be your host for the following episodes that will bring exciting topics and guests from across the early music sphere straight to your ears. Besides singing in various European ensembles, Jasmina is also the voice teacher at the International Course on Medieval Music Performance in Besalú in Spain, and she is currently conducting research in the field of vocal pedagogy. Thank you, Bernard Foucault and Albert Edelmann, for this talk, which is an ideal introduction for our podcast series, Our Future Past. Where does the early music tradition come from? Where is the fringe now? What is the next big thing in early music? That is what we want you to discover. So follow us for more episodes that will each focus on one hot topic of early music. This podcast series is a preparation for this upcoming summit that will take place in Bozar in November 2020. It will assess the state of early music today and take a critical look at its practices and evolution. Don't miss the upcoming episodes and learn about the secret life of museum instruments and catch a glimpse of what the next generation of early music concerts could look like. Mm -hmm.